Well, good morning, citizens. I'm glad I could join you on this Sunday morning. My name is Thomas, and it's a blessing to be with you for your Sunday service. Unfortunately, I can't be with you in person because of the global pandemic that's still taking place. And so I'll be sharing God's word with you from my home. And as you can see from my background, you can see my children's schoolwork and artwork behind me. Hopefully it won't be too distracting for those of you who are watching and listening. Uh, but I'm thankful that I could be here because uh, Citizens is actually a church that is dear to my heart. Uh, I've heard of your church and I know of your church and all the good things that you guys are doing in the city of LA. Uh, I know of members of this church as well who attend and uh, have personal relationships with some of them. Uh, but also I know uh, your lead pastor, Jason Min, fairly well. He is someone who I consider a friend and a dear brother. And for some of you, if my voice sounds a little bit familiar, it's because Jason and I, we actually do a, a podcast together. And so I talk to Jason regularly through that. But also maybe some of you might have heard or don't know, but Jason and I, we actually became lead pastors of our churches around the same time. And so uh, we are brothers in arms and he's someone who I'm always rooting for and someone whose church I'm always rooting for. And so it's a blessing to be with you and to be able to share God's word with you. And it's especially a blessing because I'm able to share God's word with you during this season of Christmas where Christmas time is coming. And if you're like me, uh, you might have been already putting up your Christmas decor. I know for my family, as soon as Thanksgiving was over, uh, we put up our Christmas tree, we set up our Christmas lights, we started listening to Christmas music. But just know if you're like my family where you started to put up all your Christmas decorations after Thanksgiving, uh, you're a little bit late to the party. Uh, the reason why is because the Christmas, people are actually celebrating it earlier than ever. In fact, there was a USA Today article that came out a few days ago where it talks about how people, they've been celebrating Christmas since back in October. And the reason why people are celebrating Christmas so much earlier this year is because it's 2020. As you know, nothing's really been kind of normal this, this year. It's been a really challenging year. It's been a really difficult year where a lot of us, we kind of lost our sense of control and our sense of life and what it, what it feels like and the way what we're used to life. And so people, they actually started to put up Christmas lights and Christmas trees a lot earlier because the holidays tends to give us a sense of normalcy. The holidays tends to break us from reality, especially if it's a difficult reality. And that's why a lot of people, they've been celebrating Christmas a lot earlier this year. What's interesting though, is that Christians, we've actually always been known as a people who celebrate Christmas early. That's why we even have a name for it, what's called Advent. The word Advent is the Latin word for arrival or for coming. And the reason why Christians always celebrated Advent was to prepare the church for the coming day of Christmas. Uh, but this early celebration for Christians, it wasn't for us to break from reality or to escape reality. But rather, the reason why we celebrate always Christmas early is so that we could be reminded of a greater reality. What is this greater reality that Christmas is meant to remind us of? What is the purpose of Christmas? And today, what I want to talk about is I want to talk about one of the greatest gifts that is offered to us on Christmas. And that gift that's offered to us on Christmas is this gift of being adopted as sons of God. Now, to understand what this means, I want to read a passage for us from the letter of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 26, all the way to chapter 4, verse 7. And so if you can read along as I read this out loud. So starting in verse 26, the Apostle Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, 
there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the reading of God's word. You know, there are many ways that people address God according to the Bible. There are many titles that we are told to uh, talk to God and address him as. Uh, he is known as Elohim. He is known as Yahweh. He is called El Shaddai. He is the Holy One. He is the Lord of Lords. Uh, but one unique title that Christians uniquely are told to address God as is actually to address him as Abba Father, which is something that no other religion ever addressed God as. In the ancient times, God was always addressed as someone who is mighty or someone who is far away. Even Jews who had an intimate relationship with God, they would ne never dare to address him as Father. Why is it that Christianity, we are the one religion, the first religion, that tells us, that tells people to address God as Abba Father? And the reason why is because Christianity is unique where Christianity claims that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And what's even more unique and more bold about Christianity isn't just that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, but Christmas is a time when the Son of God came to earth so that if we place our trust and faith in him, if we have a relationship with the Son of God, we also can be called sons of God. Now, what exactly does it mean to be a son of God? How is it that we become sons of God? Like, what does that process look like? And how can we actually feel like sons of God as well? And what I hope to do today is through this passage, I want to answer those questions by looking at this passage in Galatians in three ways. First, I want to talk about the status of sonship, what it means to be a son. Second, I want to talk about the process of sonship, how we become sons. And then lastly, I want to talk about the experience of sonship. How can we experience what sonship is? So first and foremost, the status of sonship. You know, when the Bible calls God our Father and it tells us to call God Father, a lot of modern people, we tend to understand this in a universal creation way. For example, Henry Ford, he is the father of the automobile because Henry Ford created the automobile. Your dad is your father because your dad, he, in a sense, created you. But in the Bible, even though in one sense it's true, we are uh, sons of God because God created us. He has made us in, his, in our image. And so in one sense, everybody is a son of God in a creational sense. But what's interesting is when the Apostle Paul, whenever he talks about God being our father and we relate to him as sons, it's never in creation terms. Look again what it says in chapter 3, verse 26 of Galatians. What Paul says is that for in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. Paul is saying here, not that every human being is a son of God. That's not what Paul is thinking. But he qualifies that it is those who are in Christ that are sons of God's. 
To understand, in other words, what it means to be a son of God, according to Paul, Jesus, he must be the point of reference. And that's why in Christianity, Jesus, he is not the son of God simply in a creation sense, because Jesus, he is the eternal one. He is not someone whom God created, but Jesus, he is the son of God in a relational sense. The reason why Jesus is called a son of God is because he is precious in God's eyes. And therefore, if you are in Christ, you are a son of God and you share in Jesus' sonship. Now, what does this mean for you and me? Well, two things that I want to highlight what this means to be a son of God. First, to be a son of God means that you are covered in Christ. Look how the Apostle Paul in this letter, how he elaborates what he says in chapter 3, verse 26. And he describes what it means to be in Christ. Look what he says in the next verse, in verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. That word put on Christ, that's actually clothing imagery. And this is significant because when you think about clothes, they don't just cover you, but your clothes actually reveal who you are. For example, depending on the type of clothes that you wear, oftentimes it reveals your social status. If you're wearing designer clothes, it probably means you're well off. And if you're not wearing designer clothes, maybe you're not as well off. Clothes often reveal your social status. Clothes also can reveal your culture. If I was preaching uh, in an overcoat with a tie, you might presume I come from more of a Western culture versus if I'm preaching in a long robe, you might presume I come from a more Eastern traditional culture. And so when clothing, what the function of clothing, it doesn't just cover us, but that covering actually reveals a little bit about who we are. And so when Paul says that you are a Christian and you are in Christ, what he is saying is that you are covered in Christ and that reveals something about you. It reveals something precious about you. And he tells us how much what this means in verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying is that when you are in Christ, God does not treat you according to your race, according to your social status, according to your gender. That is not the primary identity marker that you have in God's eyes. God treats you like a son. He treats you like he treats Christ because he sees Christ covering you and you have the status of sonship in his eyes. One of my favorite analogies of how to understand this is uh, from an author where he, I was reading a book and he was describing how he knew a friend who worked as Mickey Mouse in Disneyland. She was one of those actors who put on a Mickey Mouse suit and would be in the Disneyland park and would greet everyone in the Mickey Mouse suit. And this, and this, this lady, she actually revealed to the author how uh, she actually loved this Mickey Mouse job. And the reason why is because she always felt in her own skin a little bit unaccepted, a little bit insecure around people. But when she put on this Mickey costume, she felt kind of, she felt hidden. And when all these kids would come up to her and want to shake her hand and give her a hug, she felt very loved. And this is why she, she really loved the Mickey Mouse costume situation. She really loved her job. And the reason why is because when people came to her, they weren't looking at her primarily, but they're looking at what covered her, the Mickey costume. It covered all of her imperfections. It covered all of her self-consciousness. And this author, when he describes this, he says this quote, this is another way to picture what it means for you to be in Christ. You are completely safe, hidden in him. He represents you before the Father. He covers you. 
your sin, your shame, your weakness, but he covers you in a very real way, not as a temporary fiction. You are alive in him, moving with him through the world, clothed in all of his benefits and blessings. So in other words, to be a son of God means when God sees you, he sees Christ, his beloved son, with whom he is well pleased. So that's the first thing to what it means to be a son of God, is for us to be covered in Christ, and that makes us and reveals us to be like Christ in God's eyes. But secondly, to be a son of God means that you are heirs with Christ, H-E-I-R, heirs with Christ. In the ancient world, parents had many children all the time, more than two, three kids. They always had many children. But only one was the heir, meaning the inheritor of the property. Only one was the one who got the majority of the wealth, and that was always the firstborn. The firstborn was the heir, and so they would receive the inheritance, the primary inheritance from their parents. And so when the New Testament describes Jesus Christ as being the firstborn, it's not that Jesus was the firstborn of many sons, but rather he is referring to as the firstborn, meaning he is the heir. There is something special about Jesus. And so when Paul says that you are in Christ, what Paul is also saying is that you are heirs of God. You are the special firstborn. You're not just a son, but you are the firstborn son. And that's why in verse 29, Paul writes, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so therefore, to be a son of God means that you're not just beloved, but wealth, glory, honor, status is given to you. And awaits you. And just to all the ladies who are out there, not to trip you out, but just know when Paul says that you are a son of God too, I hope that's not a stumbling block for you because Paul, when he wrote this letter, he is very aware that he has female listeners. But in the ancient world, daughters were not allowed to receive an inheritance. Only the sons were able to receive it. And so what Paul, for him to say that all of you in Christ are heirs of God, all of you, including sisters, you are also heirs of God. What Paul is saying is that your gender does not preclude you from the status. You are also given a status as the firstborn. And so rather than Paul ignoring gender and, and not actually caring for sisters in the church, he's actually uplifting their status, saying you share in that status as well in Christ Jesus. And to summarize my first point, so when you are covered in Christ, Realize that what this means is you are covered in the status of sonship and God the Father, he delights in you like a son. I have a son, his name is Judah. And again, you can see some of his artwork behind me. And you know what, if I were to be honest, objectively, if he wasn't my son, I'm not sure if I would like him very much. And the reason why is because, you know, my son, he's, uh, he's interested in things I'm just not interested in. He's into a really big garbage truck phase where he loves garbage trucks and he loves to watch it even on YouTube. And I'm just not interested in watching that with him. My son, when he talks, is very nonsensical. He'll tell stories that kind of have no punchline or don't lead to anywhere. And he just kind of repeats himself. So he's not a very fun person to talk to. And my son, he's actually pretty self-absorbed. He always tells me to watch things with him. He always tells me to feed him. He always tells me to clean after him. Not once has my son asked me, hey, dad, how are you doing? What do you want to eat today? He never once asked me that. My son, he's not interesting. We don't have anything in common. He's very self-absorbed. And yet what's interesting is even though he's like this, I don't just tolerate him. I actually delight in him. I actually like spending time with this kid. And the reason why is because Judah, he has the status of sonship in my eyes. 
as much as I delight in my son, do you realize how much God delights in his eternal beloved son? God loves Jesus because Jesus has the status of sonship. And if you are in Christ, you also share that status of sonship. And God delights in you as well. Now, how do we receive the status as sons of God? We're not born with it. We don't earn it. But the Bible actually has a term for it. The way we become sons of God is this term that we're familiar with, which is called adoption. And that leads to my second point, the process of sonship. Rosario Butterfield, she's a university professor and author, and she's uh, pretty familiar with this concept of adoption because she had a lot of children that she adopted herself. And one thing that she notes is that adoption, it actually always begins with a sense of loss because adopted children, they come from a context of loss. And when you think about no child, they, no child asks to be adopted. Uh, no child asks for parents who couldn't take care of them. No child wants to be given away by their parents. But, so as, but as beautiful and as redemptive as adoption is, by definition, adoption that can actually only happen in the context of loss. And Paul, what he says is this is actually the human condition. The reason why we can't naturally become children of God, the reason why we can't naturally become heirs, is because of the fact that we come from a context of loss. Paul looks at the human condition, in fact, and he actually puts it in worse terms. He doesn't just see us saying this is we come from loss or sadness, but he actually says the context that we come from, it's actually he described it as slavery. Look what again he says in uh, chapter in Galatians verses one to three. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, he is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And so in chapter four, verses one to three, Paul is saying that all of us, um, if to put it, I guess, in more modern terms, all of us, we gain a sense of, ex of acceptance and identity from something. And naturally, according to Paul, what we gain our identity from is what he calls the elementary principles of the world, meaning the normal institutions of life. You find your identity or acceptance from your career or from your relationships or from your family. And that's why, because we don't have a good grip on those things, we are always consumed with anxiousness and worry and insecurity. And we look at that as life. Paul looks at that and calls it slavery. And the ancient world, when you were a slave, you had no family. You had no inheritance. You had to just fend for yourself. And it was a really bad thing to be a slave back then. And this is where the beauty of adoption comes in. Because adoption is this process where you actually come into a family. You actually take away that status of slavery and become a son. And what adoption is in God's eyes is this process where God brings us in and he gives us a name into his family. That's why in verses 4 to 5, this is what Paul says actually happens. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This passage is filled with gospel truths everywhere. But notice the whole purpose of everything God's doing is at the end of verse 5, which is for us to receive adoption as sons. J.I. Packer, who's a famous theologian, he once said, quote, Adoption, this is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher than even justification. So in other words, the whole purpose of the gospel, the whole purpose of Jesus doing everything that he's done 
is for us to receive something, adoption as sons. Now, I don't know about you, but this is actually contrary to how I naturally think about adoption. I realize looking back when I think about adoption, I tend to have naturally a very low view of adoption. And this is what I mean. I remember when I was younger, my siblings, they would always tease me because I was the youngest child and they would tell me, hey, did you know that mom and dad are not your real mom and dad? Did you know we found you in a garbage can? Did you know that you were adopted? And they would always scare me because and they would tease me saying that I was an adopted child and my response was always, no, like I didn't want to be adopted. Because if I felt like if I was adopted by my parents, it made me feel like less loved, made me feel like I didn't belong as much as my siblings who were naturally belonged. And so when the Bible says that you and I, we are adopted as sons of God, it actually doesn't feel flattering, nor does it feel beautiful at all. However, I realized that I thought this way of adoption. I had this negative view of adoption because I was actually very ignorant of how adoption works. Let me explain. Um, one of the worst fears that a lot of married couples, especially newlyweds have, is what parents call an oops baby. Have you ever heard of that term, oops baby? Uh, for example, you know, newlyweds, when they go uh, on their honeymoon, uh, imagine if they went on their honeymoon and no newlywed wants to get pregnant right away. They want to just enjoy their life for a year or so. But what happens is they go on a honeymoon, they come back and a few weeks later, you find the wife is pregnant. What we call that is, oh, you got an oops baby, because you didn't mean to have that baby. Uh, sometimes older couples, once your children are a bit older, you kind of just want to enjoy life and prepare for freedom and become empty nesters and have fun again. But when that couple accidentally gets pregnant, what do we say? Oh, you got an oops baby. Because nobody plans to have an oops baby. Nobody wants to have an oops baby. Now here's the beautiful thing about adoption. There is no such thing as an oops adoption. And the reason why is because when you see the process of what adoption is like, it's actually far different than what we imagined when we were younger. Adoption, I know people who personally have adopted. Adoption is a very intensive thing. You have to apply for adoption. You have to fill up a lot of paperwork. You have to be interviewed where they get invasive in your personal life. And it's just super intense, a lot of work. Adoption is not just intensive. Adoption is very extensive. You can wait months and months and even years for the adoption agency to talk to you or to match you or to pass things through. And not only is it intensive and extensive, but it's also very expensive. You need to spend lots of money for the applications. You need to spend lots of money for, to the agency. You need to spend lots of money to prepare for this child to come into your life. I mean, who does this? What type of people want to go through this super intensive, extensive, and expensive process of adoption? Only the type of people who really want to adopt that child. That child who comes into the household, from my, from my experience, from the people I talk to, that child who's being adopted, they are so loved. They are so prayed over. There's so much thought put into them because nobody would dare go through the rigorous process of adoption unless they truly wanted that child. And therefore, when the Bible says that you, that God has adopted you as sons of God, you must see that that is how much God wanted you. And as intensive and extensive and expensive human adoption is, it is way more intensive, extensive, and expensive for God to adopt you. 
The story of the Old Testament tells us that the way God prepared this adoption process, God didn't just wait months or years to adopt you and I. He waited what Galatians verse 4 says, the fullness of time. The fullness of time meaning hundreds of years, God establishing covenants and sending prophets and preparing the way. The story in the New Testament tells us that God didn't just prepare, but he actually, the initiation of the adoption process, what he did. In verse 4, it says God sent forth his son. God did not just travel from a, to a different country in order to begin the process of adoption with us, but God came down from heaven to earth. And the story of Christ tells us how God finished the adoption process, how he made it complete, which in verse 4 to 5, we see that Jesus, he was born of a woman. He became fully human. He was born under the law, living the perfect life in order to be, uh, to order to be a sacrifice on our behalf to die on a cross. When you place your trust in Christ, all of his righteousness is applied to you and you become sons of God through this thing called adoption in which God has prepared for, for the fullness of time. There's a YouTube video that I saw of a young African-American girl where it was her birthday. And uh, this girl, she, uh, she was actually living with her parents because they were her foster parents. And so uh, she was living with them for a while and the parents, her foster parents were filming her opening her gifts for her birthday. And so she was opening all these different gifts and finally there was this one last gift with this big box and she opened it and when she, as soon as she's opened it, when you see the YouTube video, she has a confused look on her face because the box was actually empty except with a piece of paper at the bottom. But what happens when she took out the piece of paper and she read it, she realized that this is actually a certificate stating that she has now been officially adopted by her foster parents. And after reading this certificate, the young girl just starts weeping and crying. And the foster parents, they start weeping and crying. And I'm watching this and I'm weeping and crying as I see this. And the reason why is because this little girl, she, this poor girl just grew up in the foster system her whole life. And now finally, finally, through this piece of paper, someone is telling her, I want you. I want you. And I am sure that this certificate that she had, it's now special to her now, because every time she sees it, it is a sign of assurance that she's a daughter and she is wanted by her parents. In a similar way, what Christmas tells us is we have a gift for those of us who place our trust in Christ, that no matter what you've done, no matter how you feel, if you are in Christ, you have an assurance that you are sons of God and that you are wanted by somebody. And you have that assurance at the cross of Christ where God reminds us of what he went through in order to have you and I as adopted sons of God. And so realize that the process, the sign, the, the work of adoption, far from being a secondary sonship status, it is a beautiful thing, a beautiful process that God has gone through to give us an assurance that we are his and that he is ours. And so that leads to the last point now, which is the experience of sonship. And I'll try to go through this quickly. Paul, he tells us that we are sons of God, uh, but we don't just have the status of sonship, but it's also important for us to experience this. And the reason why is because even though it's important for all children to receive love and assurance from their parents, 
Uh, it's especially important for adopted children. I remember back in high school, I had a friend who was adopted and he would sometimes tell me he was really self-conscious. And the reason why he was self-conscious at times is because he sometimes would wonder, wait, is there something wrong with me? Why did my parents before not want me? Do my parents right now even want me? Do they regret adopting me? That's what adopted parents, adopted children often experience. And if we are adopted, it's natural that we would experience that as well. And that's why Paul tells us that God, he didn't just send Christ to die for our sins on the cross, but he also tells us that the Spirit came down to dwell in us. Why? Look what it says in verse 6 of chapter 4. Because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our heart, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, Paul is saying is that so many of you, if you grew up in the church especially, you know in your head God is your Father, but you don't believe it in your hearts. And that's why you're always so self-conscious about things. That's why you're, there's still this insecurity that's in you. That's why there tends to be a lot of self-condemnation that still plagues us. Because even though we are sons of the Most High King, and we believe this, we don't really feel this. We don't always live this way. How can we not just know God is our Father, but how can we experience it in our hearts? And the answer is, look how Christ experienced it. You know, back in verse 6 in Galatians, when the Apostle Paul, he says to us that the Spirit has our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. It's interesting he uses the word Abba, because that word Abba, everything else is in Greek, but Abba is not a Greek word. It is actually an Aramaic phrase. And the reason why is because Paul, he's actually quoting someone when he says Abba, Father. The one, and the one time that we see somebody in the Bible call God Abba, Father, it was actually Jesus himself. Jesus, he was crying out, Abba, Father. And Abba, the, a term that you could uh, translate that as like Papa. It was this intimate, fatherly term. And Jesus, he was experiencing God, not just in his head as Father, but as Abba, Father, this emotive experience. And the way he experienced this emotive Abba, Father experience wasn't just Jesus walking around doing his own thing, but he actually said this in the garden. When Jesus was setting aside intentional time, connecting with God, and it was during this intentional time praying before the Lord that Jesus experiences deep communion with God, where the Spirit moved inside of Jesus, where he was able to not just know, but feel his status as a son. And in a similar way, this is why as Christians, we are instructed to always regularly set aside time to spend with God. That's why when we worship on church on Sundays, even though it's online, we gather together, or when we sing, or when we pray, or when we fellowship, naturally we tend to think of these things as just simply religious duties or habits that we do. But rather than see it like that, I would encourage us to see these are actually channels of grace. These are actually moments that we set aside time for us to not just know in our minds, but experience in our hearts the status of sonship that we have in Christ. And what Paul tells us is when you have that, the Spirit of God is going to move in you so that you can feel like you're a son of God. To illustrate this in another way, Thomas Goodwin, he is a 17th century Puritan pastor. He had an observation that I thought was very interesting where he said that he was writing in his journal uh, he, how one day he was sitting down and he was observing a father and a son. A father and son were walking down a street alongside together. And at one point, while his father and son were walking down the street, he was a little young boy. The father picks up his son, hugs the son, and kisses him, and just puts him down, and he just starts walking again. And what happened was, when Goodwin observed that, 
what Goodwin wrote down in his journal was this. Was the little boy who was walking in his father with his father, was he more of a son when he was hugging and embracing his father than he was when he was just walking by him by the street? Objectively and legally, no. He was as much of a son walking by his father as he was hugging his father. But subjectively and experientially, that moment made all the difference in the world. He was experiencing his fatherhood. He was experiencing his sonship in that moment. And in a similar way, look at your times with the Lord. Look at your time spending with God as not you trying to prove yourself as being faithful to the Lord, not as these moments where you're just simply checking it off as being doing your religious duties, but would you see these as opportunities to experience the Father's embrace? And the reason why is because the Spirit of God wants to use these moments for you to not just, again, know His love, but to experience His love. Because while there's nothing that we can do to earn our status as sons of God, we must labor to experience it. And so as we celebrate Christmas and the coming of God's Son, I would invite you to celebrate Christmas as sons of God. If you're a visitor and this is your first time visiting citizens online, I'd like to invite you to not just know God in a creational sense, not just to know God as a God who is out there, but would you know God in a relational sense because God wants a relationship with his people and that's why he actually sent Christ to come to be in a relationship with us. He wants to relate with us, not just simply as creation, but he wants to relate with us as sons and as him as a father. For if you are a Christian, I would encourage you during this Christmas season, don't take these corporate gatherings for granted. Don't take these times of worship for granted. Don't turn off the, the screen when it's prayer or when it's a response for worship. But rather, would you see those moments as moments where God is inviting you to experience sonship? And, and you're not going to experience it by your own might, but he promises the Spirit of God is going to have you come and to experience his love and his care for you. Because that's what you need more than anything. It's not just to know that you're a son of God, but to really feel his great love for you. And so would we know this is what the gift of Christmas is for all of us? The gift of Christmas is not just for Jesus to come and to let us know that there is a God, but the gift of Christmas is that Jesus has come so that you and I, we can be sons of God. Let's all pray together. Father, I thank you, O Lord, for the work that you are continually doing in citizens, in this church, amongst your people. And I pray that as citizens prepares for this season of Christmas, as we prepare, O Lord, for what it means for Christ to come, May we know, O oh God, that this is something that is uh, meaningful for us in a way where you have come not simply to reveal yourself, but you have come to be in relationship with us. To know, O oh Lord, that when we are sons of God, we are, uh, we are covered in Christ. To know, O oh God, that you did this because of this extensive love process called adoption, and you want us to experience this sonship. Oh Lord, as much as possible. And so God, by the Spirit of God, would you be with citizens and help the people in this church to know what it means to be a son of God. And for those of us, the oh Lord, where we have a hard time understanding this, would your Spirit help us when we are weak? And would you be able to really empower just your people who are here today? And we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.